0: Well, good evening, and welcome to the Middle East Centre in Oxford. My name is Eugene Rogan, and I'm the director of the Middle East Centre, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the second of our webinars around the theme of the Arab uprisings one decade on. This week, we'll be examining the ongoing process of challenging and contesting government and its accountability in two cases where popular demonstrations seem to be motivated as much by a challenge to the sectarian order as it is to mismanagement or bad government. We'll be looking at Lebanon and in Iraq, and it's my great pleasure to be welcoming back to the Middle East Center two old friends. From Beirut, we will be welcoming Maha Yahya. Maha is the director of the Malcolm H. Kerr Center of the Carnegie Institute in Beirut, where she has been working on the whole host of political issues spanning the political violence, identity politics, pluralism, development, and social justice. She's the author of a number of works, but one really stands out in her list, which is The Summer of Our Discontent, Sects and Citizen in Lebanon and Iraq, which was published in June of 2017, very much anticipating tonight's discussion. Speaking on Iraq, we'll be welcoming Maïsoun Pachachi, who's a London based filmmaker of Iraqi origin who was educated in Iraq, the UK, and the USA. She studied filmmaking at the London Film School where she took her master's. And since 1994, she's been an independent documentary filmmaker. She's just completed a fiction feature film called Our River, Our Sky. In Arabic, the title is Kulshimaku, which was shot in Iraq in 2019. And even before the film was shot, it was a prize winner. It had taken the IWC Gulf Filmmaker Award for the script for the film at the Dubai International Film Festival in December of 2012. So we're very excited to see Our River, Our Sky in the cinemas soon. But tonight, we're delighted to be welcoming Maysoon to hear her firsthand experience of the thinking between the different regions of Iraq in the month leading up to The outbreak of the protest movements there. But to get us started tonight I would like to begin by inviting Maha to start with her reflections on Lebanon. Maha over to you.
1: Good evening everyone and Eugene thank you for having me on this panel with my soon in particular. It's great to see you first even if virtually and it's great to join this discussion tonight. I will start with a few comments on Lebanon and then maybe later we can get into the parallels between Lebanon and Iraq. Um, Lebanon as you all know is going through a perfect or a series, a perfect storm of crises it is facing an economic meltdown political deadlock and now a health crisis four out of the five key pillars of the country are collapsing first the political, if you want, or the social contract that has ruled the countries since independence and then more particularly after the end of the civil war in the 1990s is under tremendous strain and is being questioned by the populace, but also by the leadership. The merchant republic model, an economic model that relied on banking and services as you know, the economic model for Lebanon, is now collapsing and there is a search for a new economic model for for the country. It is one that relied on imports. The country imports close to 80% of what it consumes. The third pillar is its middle class. The country has always prided itself on a well-educated, very sophisticated middle class of doctors, engineers, you name it. It's basically innovative and entrepreneurial class. With the economic crisis that began last year, in October 2019, as most of you know, the protests started in Lebanon, uh, ostensibly because of a WhatsApp, uh, a supposed levy on WhatsApp. They were going to add, I think, six cents per month to the telephone bill and all hell broke loose. And I think people's sense at the time was enough is enough. I mean, you're looking for ways to raise money from a population that's already exhausted and impoverished. With the political protests came the economic crisis, which had been brewing for a very long time. Today, just to give a couple of figures, the currency has lost close to 70 or 80 percent of its value. The inflation is at 100, 100 percent. 50%, I can't recall, the price of basic goods has is skyrocketing. It's tripled, quadrupled, and even more in, in, for things like rice and flour. Basically, the country really is, has become unaffordable. In the process, with the loss of the value of the currency, the middle class, which I come back to now, have lost their pensions, they've lost their savings, and they've lost the value of their actual uh, incomes right now. So just to give a sense, a university, an assistant professor at the American University in Beirut used to make $66,000 per year, and now makes around $800 per month in the equivalent of Lebanese lira. And this also trickles down to the security sector, pensioneers mean, I was talking to a judge who was probably one of the most decent judges in this country spent his lifetime in service of his country and now he's talking about literally living hand to to mouth because their pension is gone and his savings are locked up in the banks he can't access them because of capital controls because I mean I I won't get into the details of on the economic front but we can have this in the Q&A session. So the middle class is disappearing. Hundreds of Lebanese, particularly the young and the talented doctors, are leaving by the droves. The health infrastructure actually is in severe crisis, which is a real problem when we're also having to deal with the pandemic. Today, the country is under a 24-hour curfew. People are meant to stay at home. And yet, for the last three days, there have been significant protests in Tripoli. Lebanon's second largest city and we can talk about the roots of that protest again in the Q a but it's it's part and parcel of the widespread grievances that Lebanese society is facing or is feeling. the fourth and fifth pillars the fourth is freedoms fundamental freedoms this country has always prided itself on you know being the you know the, the, the place where one can say what they want. Uh, anytime they want in the 50s and 60s and 70s, you know this, Eugene. It became the place where all the exiles from around the region found their space. It is a hub for intellectual and cultural and artistic activities, theater, music, writers, journalists, everyone used to, he- to be here. After the end of the Civil War, it kind of started regaining some of this, but now, you know, that sense of freedom is being slowly conscripted. We're seeing increasing clampdown on social media and on press freedoms. The final pillar is the security, the Lebanese army and the internal security services. Now, on the one hand, they are facing the same kind of pressure on their incomes. So we're starting to hear from uh, members of the security services saying, if I'm going to be earning the equivalent of $100 a month for, you know, and I need to feed my family, why should I put myself in the line of fire? And yet at the same time, the demand for the security services has ever been greater. We're seeing great. I mean, there were live bullets being shot, being used and rubber bullets in Tripoli. Last night and the night before, politicians are now calling for more and more security services for them to take over the streets, so to speak. Now, just before I stop, I just want to say a few words about who's really been protesting. The demands that are initiated in 2019 to bring down the regime were really an indictment of the catastrophic political and economic mismanagement of the country by its political class. This is a political class that is composed mainly of four-time militia leaders who came to power after the end of the civil war in 1990 and moved into state institutions. In the process, they turned state institutions into, or they treated state institutions as a kind of war bounty. Now, the profound abuse of the political system by this leadership was significant. I'll just quote one figure. The World Bank in 2016 estimated that 9% of gross domestic product in Lebanon is lost to patronage politics. So the protests in itself began as a revolt against the system and a complete kind of collapse of trust in all institutions. And you see this in a lot of the polls that have happened, whether it's state institutions, political parties, the banking sector, professional associations, etc. And then the sense, which was remarkable that we started to see in 2019, in October, 2019, of the us versus them where the us was no longer about sect, ethnicity, class or gender to address the topic of today, but rather it was about a corrupt political class versus the rest of the country. And here I think there was this growing realization or acceptance by broad cross-section of the population that the sectarian politics in Lebanon, there isn't a single community that has genuinely gained out of it and that in fact it's the political class that has won at the expense of Lebanese citizens. But at the same time this moment of national awakening was also about upending a lot of social norms in the country What we saw was an uprising against a patriarchal system that maintains unequal relationships among citizens, particularly women. Lebanese women were really at the forefront of demonstrations. They continued to mobilize. They were forming lines of defense between protesters and security services, organizing events, trying to decrease sectarian tensions when they emerged between neighborhoods. Etc. And they were demanding equal rights and an uplifting of the personal status laws of sectarian communities, a kind of overhaul of the system and the move to a more secular, a more civic system. But the protest movement was also about generations. A large number of high school and university students were participating in the protests. And we, I mean, there were many interviews with them. And it was remarkable to see these young men and women of this country talking about, we don't care about losing a year from our education, we're actually fighting for our future, we don't want to leave. As many of you know, Lebanon has a history of emigration. Their mantra was, we don't want to leave, we want to stay in Lebanon, we don't want to be forced to emigrate, we want to stay with our family and friends. I think also this protest that we saw were about the systematic exclusion of the country's impoverished population, whether they lived in Lebanon's geographic peripheries or on the edges of major towns and cities. We saw populations really protesting their continued marginalization from political and economic life in a country that has centralized everything historically in the capital Beirut. Uh, Tripoli, for example, was dubbed the bride of the revolution because of the high participation rate and demonstrations. And we can talk a bit more about Tripoli, as I said earlier in the Q&A, and why Tripoli is incredibly significant, not only October 2019, but today is also incredibly important. And finally, I think these protests were also about, you know, opposing this privileging of connection of sect over merit. You had professionals and expatriates that were playing a key role in the protests. They were funding, they were organizing, they were doing everything they can to say, we want a civic uh, system. We don't want to privilege sect over merit, connection over merit. And finally, two more quick points about this is there was also a rediscovery of the public realm and this sense of a reassertion of notions of the public good anyone who was here during that period will remember this amazing energy i mean you'd go down to martyr square where the most of the protests were happening and there would be at least seven eight nine ten discussion groups happening around anything and everything you can think about and this was happening across the country not just in beirut And for the first time in the country's history, we saw a sense of empowerment also amongst private sector companies who began taking staging demonstrations and saying, we're not going to pay taxes because we'd rather divert this money to our employees. And I think that the final one and maybe the most important one that is relevant to this discussion today is that the protests also showed a real revolt against the sectarian leadership of the country. Because what we saw was protests happening within communities. This is the first time where the protests were not just in Beirut, but were actually in towns and villages across the country. And members of various sectarian communities were protesting against their own leadership. And this is also a milestone, in a sense, for Lebanese internal politics. And it's quite significant. Hence came the slogan, all of them means all of them. I'll stop right here and leave it for the Q&A.
0: Thank you so much, Maha. That is just so much material for us to work with. And I think lots of points of comparison and contrast to be drawn in the case of Iraq. So could I invite Maisoun to please now take the floor?
2: Thank you, Eugene. Thank you. I'm going to read, I'm afraid. I'm not as fluent. And uh, just to say that I am a filmmaker. I'm not an academic. I was actually not present at the protests that uh, that kicked off in uh, October 2019. I was in Iraq in 2019 shooting my film, but that was in the very beginning of the year. But I'm very much in touch with people who were there. The protests, which began in Iraq in uh, October 2019, were not the first. Between 2011 and 18, sporadic protests took place in various cities against unemployment, low wages, corruption, and the lack of utilities like electricity and clean water. But 2019's protests were much bigger and much more inclusive. Two events triggered the protests that began in Tahrir Square in Baghdad in October 2019. One month before 100 university graduates had protested in front of the prime minister's office demanding jobs. There was a major use of force against the protesters by the security services. And in response, protests around the country happened against the methods used to suppress the graduates' demonstration, especially the violence against women. A little later, a respected army officer, Abdul Wahab Al Saidi, who as head of Iraq counter-terrorism force, had led the fight against ISIS in Mosul, where he was a hero and where a statue of him was erected in the city by a grateful population. This man was suddenly dismissed and transferred to a desk job in the defense ministry and his statue was taken down. According to many people, this decision was taken by the prime minister under pressure from Qassem Soleimani, the commander of the Quds Force of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. He was the real power in Iraq and Saadi had had a disagreement with him. People were outraged by this. For them, this was a symbol of how the country did not really belong to its people, but to foreign forces and to the corrupt, incompetent Iraqi political class and their militias. Protests erupted in Tahrir Square in Baghdad and in other cities, and the slogan was, Nurid Watan, we want a homeland. The protesters wanted radical systemic change. A core demand was an end to the quota system, the muhasasa, on which the government was based. This was set up by the US occupying power after the 2003 invasion to create proportional representation, but on an ethnic and sectarian basis. Protesters blamed this system for causing divisions and entrenching an identity on a sectarian basis and erasing a sense of national Iraqi identity. The protesters also blamed this policy for the division of causing a catastrophic barbaric sectarian veil of violence of 2006 and eight which took so many lives it also meant that the political class acted in self-interest as defined by sex and ethnicity and not in the interest of the whole country it enabled corruption and networks of patronage and cronyism amongst the political class and the militias who backed them the scale of the corruption is unbelievable And I have an anecdote to tell about this, to do with Lebanon. While some were enriching themselves on a massive scale, the rest of the country was being impoverished. As one activist said, we can no longer tolerate a system which allows political elites to treat our country's resources as spoils. One slogan was, not Shia, not Sunni, not Christian, we are one Iraq. This reflects an outright rejection of sectarianism, but it also expresses an aspiration. Other demands were to reform the party and electoral laws so that no party with a militia could run for office. The other core demand was that no foreign power should be able to influence or intervene in Iraqi affairs because that has been the case since 2003 from various parties. And the nature of these protests was different from anything that had been seen in Iraq before. There was a core commitment to nonviolence. There was a rejection of hierarchy. So, when they were asked who the leaders were, the protesters would say there were no leaders, and nor did they want any. Of course, this was probably also to protect the people who might have been seen as leaders. Tahrir Square became a tent city where thousands flocked to join the protests from different parts of the city, but also from the rural areas. People of all ages, grandparents to primary school children brought by their teachers, came. People brought food, they painted murals, they performed street theater against the interference of foreign powers, and they made memorials for the dead from the spent tear gas canisters. The tuk-tuk drivers became de facto ambulances, ferrying the wounded to hospital and returning with food. Lawyers came to give advice. Medical volunteers, often at risk of their own lives, came to treat the wounded, and everywhere, there were discussions. A remarkable expression of unity and grassroots solidarity. For the first time, people from poor areas like Southern city met those from Mansour, which is a comfortable middle-class area in Baghdad. For the first time, they were speaking to each other and of course, across sectarian lines. The government reacted with force. Initially, it was snipers and the use of military grade tear gas, the canisters often being aimed at the heads of the protesters. Activists were kidnapped as they went home, either by security forces or the militias, and some who'd been targeted were assassinated, which even now, after the protests have stopped, is happening in cities like Basra and Amara, probably as a warning to others. By the end, people were exhausted by the violence and possibly because there was not enough tangible progress. By the end, 700 people had been killed, 25,000 had been wounded, and 5,000 left with permanent disabilities. But to finish, I'd just like to quote to you what my friend Nauf Asi, who I think is joining us here from Baghdad, told me. She said, the big gain of the protest is that there has been a development of political awareness, a commitment to a non-sectarian, non-violent movement for justice and equality. And even if the political class has not changed, the society has. In their sense of their own power, what they feel entitled to, and how they identify
0: themselves. Thank you so much. And I take my hat off to both you and Maha for being able to address such a breadth of issues driving these very different and yet comparable popular protest movements in Iraq and in Lebanon. I am going to want to yield the floor very quickly because I can see the questions are already beginning to come in from our audience, which is over 130 strong, which is wonderful to see. But I think the point you made, soon, about the way in which Iraqi protesters were saying in particular, they didn't want any outside power to have any influence on their country's politics was a message that was very much coded about Iran. And the one country that seems to be a unifying thread between the sectarian dissonance in Lebanon and in Iraq is the role that Iran is playing now, whether it's through the support that they give to Hezbollah in Lebanon, or whether it's through the kind of interventions that Qasem Soleimani was you know, protested against for doing. Could I ask you both to just give a little bit of thought to the role that Iran plays in destabilizing the situation in both cases, and what the way forward might be? I wish I knew. Maha?
1: Well, I mean, when it comes to Lebanon, the support for Hezbollah is the obvious one. Hezbollah is a Lebanese political party, but it is one that is part of a larger regional axis that is involved in regional conflicts. Uh, I mean, it's, it's an extension of Iran's policies in the region in that sense. It's interesting that I read just now a few days ago that um, they're, they're now considering some sort of strategic agreement between the Republic of Iran itself and its proxies and allies, some sort of defense agreement where they agree to defend each other, which means it's going to pull Lebanon even further into the orbit, into an external orbit, uh, if you like, external to Lebanon at least. The challenge is significant. I mean, uh, Iran's destabilizing and i I don't want to get into iran versus saudi arabia or iran versus the us if i just want to zoom in just to respond to your question of iran's particular activities in iraq where a lot of the protests were about iran barra barra and basra and karbala and places we never thought we would hear these words i mean basra to hear iran barra barra and it just displays the level it's not just about a rediscovery of iraqi national identity a, a sense of iraqiness but it's also the sense that their country is being exploited for external purposes that someone else i mean my sense from iraq of iraqi friends and colleagues and you know workshops have participated and the sense that Iran acts towards Iraq in the same way that Syria used to act towards Lebanon. Deciding, making, you know, playing a big role in the internal politics, decision-making, humiliating leaders, etc. Hezbollah is Iran's man in Lebanon, and they are, at this point, the kingmakers in many ways. Nothing will move in the country if they don't agree to it. And one of the issues today, as you may know, Lebanon is in a severe bottleneck. It's unable to, uh, politically, where the, the government formation has been stalled for at least six, seven months now. We have a prime minister, caretaker prime minister, and a prime minister elect, and government is not being formed. And part of the issue is, part of it is uh, domestic politics. that I, I won't get into the weeds here, but part of it also is that whatever happens in Lebanon is going to be part of a regional discussion or international discussion between the Iranians and the the United States of America. And as far as the U.S. is concerned, frankly, Lebanon is a footnote. It really is a footnote in this broader regional deal that's going to be put on the table. So for Lebanon, it's not a very comfortable position to be in.
0: No, I think, I think you've made a good point, and if Lebanon's a footnote, you know, Iraq, because of America's historic involvement, is an exclamation mark.
1: <laughs> uh, and
2: the fear, I think, that I've heard expressed, and I feel myself, is that the battle between the U.S. and Iran is going to take place in Iraq.
0: Think, well, Iraqis themselves that? are pushing back. I mean, I, I'm very struck by Saadi's statue coming down, being yeah. more antagonism between Iraqi citizens and their neighbor, Iran. That's There's no a- real sort of dynamism in Iran's position in Iraq, sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse as far as public opinion is concerned.
1: Well, in public opinion, it's happening. But What's worrisome, for example, is that the rocket that was fired on Saudi Arabia a couple of days ago supposedly came from Iraq, not from Yemen this time. And it was Iraqi you know, groups on the ground that claimed it. So this attempt to drag Iraq again or for it to become the playing field for this regional and international tug of war becomes even more significant.
0: And perhaps all the more reason for there to be détente between the United States, Iran, Iran and regional actors. It's very hard to see how in the current sanction regime and the pressures on Iran that one could hope to see moderation in Iran's positions yeah. in neighboring countries like Iraq or Lebanon. Yeah.
1: Well, we're part of the negotiating, uh, you know, the arsenal of things that they will negotiate over. So whether it's sanctions, whether it's, that's why I think the government information will continue to be stalled because there's no reason for them to give anyone anything until, you know, they get something else for it. So the negotiations are happening outside of Lebanon, not in Lebanon. At this point, I don't see an opening. And I think it's the same for Iraq. It's part of the ne- negotiating tactics that Iran will use to its benefits now that it's reopened a conversation with the United States.
0: At this point, I think I need to be handing over to the questions from our audience. Before we hand over to Michael Willis, who's going to moderate the Q&A line, let me just remind listeners who've joined us for tonight's webinar that you can ask your questions to our speakers through the Q&A bar on your Zoom function. If you want to be anonymous, you can mark it as anonymous. If you put your name down next to your question, then Michael's going to give you the satisfaction of hearing your name broadcast. So do please Put your questions up now, and Michael, let me hand over to you for the Q&A. Thank you very much, Eugene.
3: Our first question is directed specifically at Maha on Lebanon, but I think it's relevant really to both countries, and you've touched on it already. And It's a question that comes from Adam Locke, and Adam's question is, to what extent can the Lebanese and Iraqi protest movements be called a a nation-building movement overturning the post-civil war, civil conflict in sectarian confessional settlement? And is it comparable to the other revolutions against perceived corrupt and distant governments, for example, the nationalist revolutions against Kremlin-backed dictators in Eastern Europe? So really, is there actually something identifiable as a nation-building movement uh, emerging from these protest movements in both countries? So it's both to Maha and to maysoon maysoon do you
1: want to start?
2: Okay, I mean, in a way, in Iraq, it is a kind of nation building exercise, because actually everything was raised to the ground in 2003, everything fell apart, the whole infrastructure of the country and the sense of the nation because of this incredible uh, sectarian division that happened. So in a sense, it's rebuilding something that is, you know, when they say we are all one Iraq, that's what the aspiration is, to be actually to have a homeland and to have a country and to have a nation. So, maybe, yeah.
1: I think for Lebanon, also, it is. I don't know if it's a nation building exercise or more of a recapturing the nation somehow. So, the sense that, again, like Iraq, we are all Lebanese, our sectarian identity doesn't matter. I mean, this, this sense was very genuine on the ground. Now, how that will translate, and I think this is where we need to distinguish between what's happening today across the region, what happened in Eastern Europe, you know, decades ago. One is, this is a very different context. We're at a moment where people have lost belief in political parties, Uh, the whole question of how you organize, how do you play politics? I mean, we're coming out of a period where politics was a dirty word for a long time. And we're also coming out of a period where across the region, political parties were systematically demolished by those in in government. So I think that it's a very different period in that sense. And this is partly reflected in the disarray we're seeing today or the the diversity. I don't want to say the diversity, but the diversity of people and groups who are part of these movements. We don't have, you know, a Vaclav Havel or, you know, a kind of a known leader who is kind of leading the crowds down the street. No, you have groups who are protesting. How that will translate into a political movement that's able to transition Lebanon or Iraq into something else, I think, is a much bigger and a very different question. The last thing I would say in terms of context also is that the regional context of the democracy movements that emerged in Eastern Europe was very different. They had a Europe, a region that was completely supportive of these movements. In this region, in this part of the world, the region was completely anti these demonstrations. Look at 2011. I mean, Tunisia, Egypt, and immediately. The counter-revolution kick-started. The realization was, oh my God, this is a domino effect and it's hitting all of us. So, I mean, actually the actors in the region have played a very active role in undermining these protest movements across the world, including, I would say, Lebanon and Iraq. There is a question on Hezbollah here. Hezbollah has played a role also. We saw the reaction at the beginning of the protest movement in 2019 their reaction, you know, first saying, yeah, it's okay, you, you're right to protest, we understand you're upset, but you know, okay, now you can go home, we've heard you, we'll try and do something about it. And then the next step was to say, you're all traitors and there's treason here and you're all children off and being paid by foreign embassies. I mean, it was a crescendo of trying to discredit the, the protests and what was actually happening on the ground.
3: Thank you very much. A couple of questions now on whether specific events change the nature of the protests and their uh, prospects. And there's a question for each of you. For Maha, do you think if it had not been for the COVID-19 pandemic, there would actually have been effective change by now? And that comes from Isabel Miller. And our second question comes from Viresh Joshi, former student, very good to see you with us, Viresh. And this goes to May and it is, Did the killing of Qasem Soleimani galvanize anti-sectarian sentiment or sharpen sectarian divides? Did it give the government a get-out-of-jail-free card in that it was deprived of having to take action against Iranian forces? If you could both answer those things about how specific events may have changed the movement. Thank you.
1: For Lebanon, very quickly, yes, COVID-19, what we have seen change by now, I sincerely doubt it you've got a political elite that's very deeply entrenched. And unless, I mean, half the city was blown up on August 4th and they still haven't budged. So and not, not to mention the thousands of deaths, etc. So you have a very entrenched political elite, but what we would have seen is a continuation of massive movements on the ground. And that could have created additional pressure on this political elite to budge somehow. So yes, it, it did change the trajectory, but not in the way, at least I don't think I mean, it's, it's hard. I, mean, I don't have the crystal ball, but I don't think it would have, we would have seen, you know, massive change by now. Uh, yes, in terms of the killing
2: of Soleimani, I don't think it really, I mean, there, were, there are people who are very linked to him, who are in power and who are benefiting from, you know, being in power and it, his being killed is a diminution of their power, is conceivably, possibly a diminution of their power. And so I don't think it really changed. It didn't change anything in the squares, in the protests, except that there were people who came out, you know, against the US because Soleimani had been killed. And so I don't think it really has changed anything. I mean, I think they'll pick up where they
3: left off, basically. (laughs) That's interesting. Thank you very much. And again, a question I think that, that it'd be nice to have both of you answer. And this comes from Caterina Della Cora from the LSE. Thank you for joining us, Caterina. good to see you here. And the question she poses is this. Everybody dislikes the sectarian system, but there are no mechanisms in either Lebanon or Iraq for overcoming it. In a way, the eggs have to be broken to make the omelette, but the cost of doing so would be high. Are there any practical steps that can be taken in this direction? Are there any institutions in which reform could be made more feasible? So really, is there really functional alternative to the sectarian system in either country? Maha first.
1: In Lebanon, yes. I mean, in Lebanon, the Ta'if agreement already foresaw the move towards a civic form of governance. The idea was that there would be the formation of an upper Senate that would include members of the religious groups, representatives of the different religious groups in Lebanon, and where any decision, policy decision, that is considered of strategic or of national implications, with national implications, would actually be discussed in this particular Senate. There's actually also been discussions about including members of the diaspora, representatives of Lebanon's extensive diaspora in this Senate. And once that Senate is established, the idea was we would then move to parliamentary elections that would not be based on sectarian identity. And that in time, you would slowly move away from political appointments or appointments in the civil service based on sectarian identity. The Lebanese constitution actually is very particular about this because it says that only level one service, civil servants should be considered based on their sectarian identity. In practice, this is now at every single level. If you want to move a caretaker of a building from one building to another, it becomes part of the kid-pork between the leadership. So the Lebanese governance system does have something, a path forward in place, should they choose to implement it. They simply have chosen not to implement it. And it's now almost, I mean, this is since 1990 that this has been in place and they still haven't implemented it.
2: Well, in Iraq, actually, some of the young people who are involved in protests in uh, in Tahrir Square and so forth, what they're trying to do is to set up parties that are, first of all, you have to get rid of the Mahasa system, the quotation, the quota system, but to set up parties that are not based on any kind of sectarian idea, but on policy. When people vote for them, they'll vote for a policy, which is a policy which addresses the needs of the whole country. is the idea, that it should be secular and non-sectarian. Now, this is going to take a long time, but I think that that's the direction in which people are moving, because the consequences of having a sectarian-based government have been really catastrophic for the country. I mean, the population is really traumatized. Everybody has lost people. So I think think it's a possibility. Um, Yeah, you probably have to break a good
3: number of eggs, but I think it's possible. Thank you. Another question for for both of you, and this comes from Nadia Alali. Thank you for joining us, Nadia. And Nadia asks, I would like to hear from both Maha and Maysoon about their view on the role of women and gendered claims in the uprisings, especially in relation to the challenging of sectarianism—the way that women have involvement in the movements have presented a challenge in any way to sectarianism. Maha, Uh,
1: women were at the forefront. I mean, they were at the forefront at every single level as I said, whether it was in terms of organizing the protests, even now an infrastructure of support for communities that were affected, families that were affected by the explosion. The idea is that they've stepped into many, I mean, broad cross-section of women have stepped into public life. It's not about just doing the NGO thing anymore. It's actually recognizing that this is all a seamless effort, whether it's uh, protecting protesters from security sector violence, or whether it's calling for equal citizenship, the right to pass on their citizenship to their children, pushing against violence, gender-based violence, and for LGBT rights. The sense that all of these are connected and you can no longer separate these rights if we want to move to a more civic Lebanon as such. So I would say they they really were at the forefront and continue to be at the forefront in every single level. That's quite amazing. I mean, the leadership that we've seen emerge amongst women is quite something.
2: Uh, Hello, Nadia, it's nice that you're here. I would say something similar about Iraq from what I know. I know, for example, that it's at a certain point, Muqtada Sadr, decided that it was uh, shameful and sinful and so forth for women to come out in demonstrations with the men. And the women were there in large, large numbers. They did an enormous number of, of murals and were involved in theater and all kinds of things. And they were there in big numbers. Uh, so he, he said that, and then they should not march together. And the women went bananas. They, were, <laughs> they refused. They said, we're not, you know, we're not being threatened by this. And, you know, and there was threats, threats that they should be. And um, among the adherents to the Sadrist line, people did that. But they weren't really people who had been involved in the protests, as far as I know. But the people who were involved in the protests absolutely categorically refused. And there was a lot of uh, talking about women's rights and around the, uh, you know, personal status laws and so forth. And people who were involved also were people who were working against gender-based violence as well, like Nof, who I quoted earlier. And also, the other thing that uh, some women said, and and men, that there was, uh, I mean, something that they didn't expect to be the case, that there was no harassment of women, no sexual harassment of women in Tahrir Square. There wasn't, and you would have expected there to
3: be, but there wasn't. Thank you very much. Question specifically on Lebanon, really brought up by two audience members, so I'll combine who are asking very similar things. And welcome Anne and Beatrice Tissier. And they're asking Maha if you could say a little bit more about the internal domestic regional dynamics in the protest, particularly the role of the protests that were in, in Tripoli. Again, outside of Beirut, Tripoli became much more important. Is there an importance of domestic dynamics that going on in Lebanon we haven't seen before?
1: Sorry, is it about, you said regional, or... uh, Within,
3: within regional, in terms of within Lebanon itself, but Tripoli performing a a new role, a particular dynamic it plays, as opposed to Beirut. Is there a sort of domestic, within uh, regional dynamic within Lebanon? Well, I mean,
1: each each city, and actually if you go on our our website, we did a series on uh, how the protests were being experienced from different cities. Because each city does have its own dynamic. It has its own history. It has its own community, it's history of protests, history of uh, organization, etc. Tripoli was incredibly important because in, in 2019, I mean, I, I remember telling people constantly, don't look at what's happening in Beirut, look at Saida and Tripoli. Because it was the first time that we were seeing these massive uh, protests in the second and third largest cities in the country. Tripoli e is significant because the popular narrative about Tripoli e is one of radicalization, Islamization, terrorism. It's associated in a lot of people's minds with radical, uh, you know, with Jaisal Islam and the fighting that came out in 2007, I believe, in the area. So there are lots of narratives. It's, uh, it's a city where there's a lot of poverty. And what happened in 2019 is actually it captured everyone's attention. The, the protests were almost like uh, massive parties. People were reclaiming their city, but also making their voices heard and saying, don't take us for granted anymore. We're sick and tired of the way this country has been run, and we want to reclaim our space back. Now, in terms of the internal dynamics, it's also reflected... I mean, Tripoli is predominantly Sunni. It reflected the discontent of the Sunni community with its own leadership. In, I mean, the city has eight different members of parliament, former prime ministers, two former prime ministers. So the the protests were very much a reflection of this discontent. Uh, And we could hear it in the protest, people saying, you know, you talked about you've been in power, but you've done nothing for the city. This is a city which has 50 percent poverty rates, which has very high levels of illiteracy, high levels of unemployment. There's been very little investment by the Lebanese state in the city. It's a very youthful population. It's a mixed city. It's a historic city. I mean, there are lots of things one can talk about. There is a dynamic there to the extent that it had its own particular modes of organization, but also something that we were seeing across the country at the same time. There's also a question, if I could just say very quickly, on whether change will happen bottom-up or top-down. I think it's both ways. It will happen both bottom-up and top-down. It's not gonna be a one-way street. There definitely has to be more organization on the ground to present an alternative, uh, because they will not budge without that. But also there has to be external pressure on the leadership as well.
3: Thank you very much. I'm tempted to sort of extend that question to Maysoon about the bottom-up <laughs> and top-down change. And also to add, again, they may well be connected, a question coming in from Maurice Kirschbaum, and Maurice is asking, uh, may soon, how she sees the upcoming parliamentary elections playing out. Will there be more protests, an intensifying of the situation, or a political change actually based on the protests?
2: Okay. Well, organising from the, you know, bottom up, top down business, I think it's, it's uh, yes, I mean, there's there's a long way to, do, to go to organise from the bottom, to have an actual programme, which isn't there yet. I think people are working on it. And, you know, as I said, some people are, are trying to sort of think about new parties. And, and I think that that will come from the bottom, kind of a structure but uh, you know the top down. Well, I don't know what is the top in Iraq. It's a bit difficult to t- <laughs> it's a bit difficult to tell. The parliamentary elections. I think yes. I mean these parties that are are being put together uh, will take part. I think the problem is that it actually if the whole muhasasa, the whole quota structure, is not abandoned, it's a problem. I mean there are also. Parties who are asking some of the people who are involved in the protests, who have, have sort of come up, appear more more um, apparent to people. I mean, that they might be uh, people who would become involved in politics. They've been invited to join some of the parties that already exist, which, you know, scares me, actually, uh, quite frankly, because uh, one people can be co-opted very easily. And if, unless there's a systemic change, it's not going to mean very much in June when the elections happen. So I don't know quite what is happening on that score. If if my friend is here, um, she would be a person who would be able to answer that question more easily. So that's, that's really all I can say. But yes, certainly, I mean, I think the big effort is to, at ground level, at grassroots level, to actually come up with a program and what something like a, a, the government that everybody seems to want looks like. Because at the moment we don't have it at all, as far as I know.
3: Thank you. Question this time, again, back to Maha and from Frank Damoni. Good to see you having you join us, Frank. And Frank is asking really about the effect that the reconstruction program, as and when it starts in Syria, will have on Lebanon, particularly, of course, the the involvement of the Iranians and the Russians. What sort of implications that may have for Lebanon?
1: Well, it depends if it happens with U.S. blessing or not, because if the Caesar Act for any Lebanese, I mean, Lebanese companies were getting ready to uh, partner with other companies and move in. But with the Caesar Act, that kind of put a damper on on any any initiatives in that direction. So I think a lot of it will depend on what kind of a reconstruction program is put in place, who's sponsoring it, and whether there is an international agreement to do so. If and when that happens, and if it is an internationally sanctioned reconstruction program, then yes, it will create businesses for Lebanon, of course, being the country right next door. Tripoli is already, you know, ready to become a hub for things to be moving in and out of Syria.
3: Thank you. I've got another question on Lebanon, particularly uh, several people have asked, if you could say something, Maha, about the role of France. Particularly, did Macron play a good role? Is France going to play a a significant role in Lebanon or not?
1: Well, they're trying. The problem is they've got the carrots, but I don't think they have quite the stick that they... uh... they need to use. And I'm not sure. I mean, now they've just, uh, his Macron's, President Macron's initiatives, he's uh, taken more life right now. There's more kind of support for it between the call that supposedly happened between him and uh, President Biden. Actually, the call happened, but what was leaked is that he, you know, said, we we'll support your initiative on Lebanon, whether that's true or not, we don't know. But also the Vatican, it seems, is pushing for something to break the political... The political stalemate in Lebanon will not break on its own. So it does need external political intervention, not military. Political intervention and diplomatic intervention to try and break that political stalemate. It will need carrots and sticks. Unfortunately, President Macron so far has had the carrots but has not had the sticks to force them to move into some sort of uh, an agreement. This political leadership is refusing to recognize that the economic losses as a result of the country's economic collapse are of such a magnitude that the, the country will have a lost decade at the very least. And even when they do recognize how significant the losses are, we're talking about $50 billion hole in the central bank alone, And what that is doing to the country, they're still refusing to accept that they need to share in these losses and that sharing in these losses means that they're going to lose some of their influence in the pieces of the pie that they've carved for themselves within state institutions. So there needs to be an international push to get them to recognize this reform is inevitable and they are going to have to let go at some point sooner rather than later, we hope, before there's not much left of the country left.
3: Thank you. One last brief question to both of you, and it's a question that came up in relation to Algeria last week and came up consistently during the protests across the region in 2011. And it's something I think both of you referred to, is the lack of leadership in the protest movements and whether this actually gives it strength or weakness, And are there any particular insights from the movement in Lebanon and the movement in Iraq? Or are we seeing a similar mixture where it actually weakens it, initially strengthening it and then weakens it later on? So your thoughts on that and a particular experiences would be very interesting. And that comes from Alexander Brindle. Maha.
1: I think that it's both a strength and a weakness. The strength is the kind of horizontal leadership allows many people to take ownership. And this comes, again, as I said earlier, at a time when people have lost faith in institutions, in organizations, in political parties. It also is a strength because it prevents the security services from going after the leaders of the protest movements, or both whether to put them in jail or in some instances they've been killed, uh, as we know historically in this part of the world. So, in that sense, it's a strength. The weakness is obviously when it comes to presenting an alternative. We saw this in Iraq, we, see, we, we saw this in Algeria, and we see this in Lebanon. People say, who's the alternative? What is the alternative? Then it becomes very problematic. Let's talk to the leadership of this protest movement. It becomes problematic because there is no one single leadership. If you recall, in January 25, when when the Egyptian uprising happened, and you know there was a call, let's talk to representatives of this revolution. A number of people went to speak to the authorities at the time, and they were, you know, there were lots of questions around them with people on the street saying, who said you can represent us? Who are you to represent us? We have not elected you to this position. So I think it is a conundrum. What I'm seeing in Lebanon, and this would be my last sentence, What I'm seeing in Lebanon is that there is a move to overcome this. And it's an exciting time in the sense we're seeing different models of organization happening. People are trying to be innovative in terms of how do you organize both horizontally and vertically at the same time. We're seeing opposition, kind of broad coalitions emerging as an opposition movement. What is the political elite in the country? So I think it's a wait and see, and we have to give these things time to mature and emerge.
2: Yes, I mean, I, w- I would really agree with that in terms of, of Iraq. I think there is strength in not having leaders. It, if it's really pursued and you set up groups, participatory groups, rather than choosing one person to represent everybody. I mean, I think it's something that might be tried as opposed to just choosing a leader. As you say, it, a leader can be picked off. And actually, in Iraq, leadership, people who are called leaders, don't have a very good um, image I mean, through the years of Saddam and all the rest that have come and gone and and the leaders that are there now. I think people are looking, not only in our part of the world, but everywhere. I think people are looking for different sorts of organization, not hierarchical, not patriarchal. So I don't know what form that will take, but I think there is a desire for that kind of thing, for leaderless leaderless
0: leadership as it were. (laughs) Well, on that note... I have to thank you for having shared of the depth of your knowledge and experience and shedding so much clarity on issues of such complexity. It's really been a remarkable privilege to share this hour with you. I'd like to invite you all to join us next week when our colleague Osama Al-Azami will be uh, speaking with Shadi Hamid from Brookings and with Nadia Oedad from the University of Kansas, where they're going to be examining the role of religion in the Arab uprisings one decade on. But from all of us in Oxford, a good night, a good weekend, and thanks to our speakers, goodbye.
1: Thank you, Eugene. Thank you, Eugene.